Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is sponsored by Audible. Do you like getting information through your ears? Well, Audible has an unmatched catalog of audio, podcasts, and original programming. And you can try it for 30 days free by going to audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. Listeners to this podcast might enjoy listening to One Dumb Guy, Paul Meyer's authorized biography of The Kids in the Hall, or the Audible original podcast Highly Legal, hosted by Jay Baruchel and written by kids biographer John Semley. But if you're signing up for Audible today, and I pray that you do, if you're signing up for Audible today and you're going to download just one book for free, I'm going to recommend Steve Martin's autobiography, Born Standing Up, as read by the author. You like comedy, you like show business history, so you need to read this book. I remember when I first got it in 2008, I was working at the Canadian Screen Training Centre, and I read it every day walking to and from work. I would hold the book straight out in front of me, thinking this was the safer way to walk and read. I could see traffic, I could see people coming at me, but everyone knows the safest way to walk and read is to listen to an audiobook. So sign up for Audible today by going to audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. That's audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. You can find the link in the show notes. Remember, your first book is free, and you can cancel any time. But signing up through that link really helps this podcast. Now on with the show. There may not be another building in America steeped in broadcast history as 30 Rockefeller Plaza in New York City. It's been home to the Today Show and the Tonight Show with Jack Parr and Johnny Carson and the Late Show with David Letterman. But likely its best known and most celebrated tenant was, and is, Saturday Night Live. In the fall of 1985, SNL was in a rebuilding phase. After a five-year hiatus, Lorne Michaels had returned as executive producer, and he was starting from scratch. It's become fashionable to beg on the cast of SNL season 11. It was the season that time forgot. But season 11 was stacked with talent, including three past and future Oscar nominees. The not-ready-for-prime-time players included Joan Cusack, Randy Quaid, Anthony Michael Hall, Nora Dunn, John Lovitz, Dennis Miller, Terry Sweeney, Denitra Vance, and Iron Man himself, Robert Downey Jr. It is my pressure to meet you. I know why whales beach themselves. Spider-Man told me! Three of those names are SNL Hall of Famers. Joan Cusack is an unassailable comedic actress, fantastic in Say Anything and Working Girl. Anthony Michael Hall was brilliant in Vacation and Sixteen Candles. And Downey, well, the long view on Robert Downey Jr. couldn't be more favorable. But even in just the five years that preceded his stint on SNL, he made Johnny Be Good, Lesson Zero, and Chaplin. But as talented as the cast was, the writer's room was a murderer's row. It included John Vitti and John Swartzwelder and George Meyer, the future brain trust of The Simpsons. It also included returning SNL old guards like Jim Downey, Al Franken, Tom Davis, and Michael O'Donohue. And newbies like Robert Smigel and Jack Handy. And of course, Bruce McCullough and Mark McKinney. It was Tuesday night, 11.30 at 30 Rock. Bruce McCullough threw a couple of books in his backpack and headed out the door. McCullough. George Meyer called to Bruce, stopping him in his tracks. He popped his head in Meyer's office. Yeah? Where are you going? Home, Bruce told him. He was headed back to his apartment. It's 11.30. How could you be going home? Have you even written anything? Bruce took a beat. From his backpack, he produced a yellow legal pad with his evening's work. He then set the table for his sketch. The press and the public hasn't liked the show so far this season. They miss Billy Crystal and Martin Short. 
Well, and then Bruce went into the pitch. 30 Helens agree that SNL was better than ever. And that was it. 30 middle-aged women named Helen standing in a field agree on something. Myers stared at the young writer. And? There wasn't an and. That was it. 30 Helens agree SNL was better than ever. All Bruce could do was repeat the premise. Myers shook his head. Look, it's nearly Wednesday, and that's all you have? And what? You're headed home? Bruce didn't realize that 11.30 p.m. was an unreasonable quitting time. All right, well, if, if you think a sketch in which 30 old biddies agree is enough to skate by, go ahead, go. You know we've got Terry Gar here this week. You gonna ask her to stand in a flock of middle-aged women? Bruce hung around the door for a moment. He thought he had written a funny sketch, but... Well, what? What was he supposed to do? Stick around? Is that it? Stick around for the sake of some pissing contest? What is it that Meyer wanted from him? I might have something else. You have something else? Great. Can't wait to hear it at read-through. And with that, Bruce slunk back to his desk to draft up something else. What that was, he wasn't yet sure. But he'd come up with something for Terry Gar. He had to. From Knockabout Media, I'm Ryan Barnett, and this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North, the podcast in which we deep dive into the history behind your favorite CanCon. This is the third installment in our five-part series on the Kids in the Hall. Last time, the audience and the kids joined forces and took over the Rivoli, and just as soon as they got together, they were torn apart by powerful forces. Lauren Michaels in the Siren Call of SNL. This is episode three. Is America ready for the Kids in the Hall? We'll come back. After these messages. Sweet dreams in our souls. Give me fruity pebbles and apples. Oh, here comes you know who. Yabba-dabba-doo, delicious do. Oh, ho, ho, I'm hungry. Santa, my pebbles, your pebbles. Tis the season to be sharing, Fred. Happy holidays, pal. Oh, Fred. Fruity and Cocoa Pebble cereals, part of this nutritious breakfast. <laughs> Never thought I'd agree with him. We don't agree. You don't think folks shop at Canadian Tire because they got so many gift ideas? Housewares, sporting goods? Nonsense. They go there to save money. money no. Money. To make people happy. Saving money makes me happy. Oh, Ebenezer, you know you've got a heart of gold in there. And it's mine. All of mine. Mine. <laughs> Now, back to our program. 1985 was a tough time for the kids in the hall. When Bruce and Mark moved to New York to work on SNL, the other three were left to find something else to do. For his part, Dave Foley was cast as a lead in High Stakes, a cheapo film noir parody that shot in British Columbia. Terry? It's booby-trapped. I noticed. You can have the treasure. No more dead bodies for me. Maybe just two more. (laughs) Meanwhile, Scott and Kevin had joined the touring company of Second City, performing archival sketches for small-town crowds around southern Ontario. When filming wrapped on high stakes, Dave Foley joined them. Despite taking the gig, Second City remained an ill fit for the members of the Kids in the Hall. Scott would outright mock the sketches they were hired to perform. In his book, author John Semley writes of Scott affecting, quote, mannerisms of an extremely effeminate, campy gay man while playing a character that was originated by John Candy. 
It had nothing to do with the sketch and was not an appropriate choice for the role. Scott just did it to do it. He did it to rebel against having to do someone else's material. According to Scott Thompson, that was the day his most famous character, Buddy Cole, was born. And then there's me. <laughs> Actor, singer, dancer, model, Canadian. But antics like that soon got him fired. Dave and Kevin held on a little longer, but they too chafed at the constraints put on them by the touring company mold. One day, they were called into the offices of Sally Cochran, the manager of Second City. Sally had been a fan of theirs, and was actually the person that originally told Pam Thomas that she should check out what the kids were doing in the back of the Rivoli. But today she had her job to do. There at Second City, she was also the brass. She was the vice principal, and she was facing a couple of kids who weren't taking their assignment seriously. Thank you for coming in. Dave checked over his shoulder, remarking that it was just him and Kevin, and the rest of the touring group wasn't present. I don't like having to call you in here. I don't. But you have to understand that when you're on our stage, you're not the kids in the hall. This is Second City, and we have a standard. Kevin interrupted. We quit. Dave and I. Quit. Like a hungry cartoon dog imagining a juicy T-bone steak, to Kevin's eyes, Sally turned into the dean of Humber College's theater program. He wasn't going to be fired. He quit. He slapped Dave on the shoulder as he marched out of the room. Come on, Dave. Well, that escalated quickly, Dave thought. But he guessed he quit too. Kevin had just said so. Rather than go against his friend, Dave just stood up and walked out, leaving Sally to finish her sentence to two empty chairs. December 22nd, 1985. Bruce McCullough stared into the neck of his bottle of beer. He was slouched oddly low in the booth he shared with his writing partner, Mark McKinney. The SNL after party was legendary. Since 1975, every Saturday night, or more accurately, Sunday morning, the cast and crew of the show would take over a Manhattan restaurant where the producers, the cast, and the writers would rub elbows with the rich and famous. On any given Saturday, you could bump into Steve Martin at the coat check or find yourself next to Paul McCartney at the urinal. But right then, Bruce and Mark were outside of all that. Even just in the SNL writer's room, they found themselves on the outside looking in. There were a couple of college dropouts from Canada, and now they were in New York City, competing for airtime with Harvard Lampoon guys and the very writers who helped shape SNL from its beginning. Michael O'Donoghue wrote the very first sketch ever performed on the show, for Christ's sake. He introduced America to John Belushi. Repeat after me. I would like... I would like to feed your fingertips... To feed your fingertips... To the Wolverines. To the Wolverines. Next, to borrow a I phrase from SNL alumnus Jay Moore, they were gasping for airtime. Up to this point, all they had managed to get on air were some jokes written for John Lovett's liar character. Yeah, that's it, ticket. Bruce asked Mark whether he thought the other kids were having more fun in Toronto. Those guys could still play together. Bruce had even heard that Scott and their friend Paul Bellini had started an art punk band called Mouth Congress, and they were playing the Rivoli from time to time. To Bruce, he'd much rather be in a punk band than trying to think of something insightful to say in his next 30-second encounter with Francis Ford Coppola. Coming out of his million-mile stare, Bruce made a pronouncement to Mark. The two of them had to get back on stage with the kids, at all costs. They weren't succeeding at SNL, and maybe they never would. So they shouldn't, they mustn't, let the group fall by the wayside. When SNL went on hiatus that summer, the kids in the hall would mount another show.
when you walk through an art museum, what happens? You see some interesting things, you see some not so interesting things, <laughs> and if you're like us at all, you're probably a little bit sleepy. Well, grab a cafecito and listen up. It's Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. We are both artists, so we look at art history through that perspective. We cover the artists you know and those that have been ignored for so many different reasons. We look at the context of the time, we compare it to today. We don't dumb anything down, but, and this is a big but, hey, we like to have a good time, okay? Nos gusta to goof <laughs> around, all right? We have hungry pantry no, bonds that no, might startle you. It's a long story. We, we feed them our materials. Art is just a visual language that is open for anyone to interpret. So if this all sounds good to you, join us on Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. The Muppets, the Sesame Street Gang, and the Fraggles. Enjoy a Muppet Christmas next Sunday. Then, Julie Andrews. With her special guests, all part of a special Sunday, Julie Andrews follows Corey Hart right after a Muppet Christmas next week. It was the night before Christmas, and there in the house, the kitten discovered the new Commodore's mouse. Now touch the mouse to do what you choose. The mouse makes the Commodore simpler to use. Educate. Entertain. Put thoughts together. The world's best-selling family computer just got better. So bring home the new Commodore 64 now. A Commodore Christmas to all. And to all a... Canniest thing Lauren Michaels did after committing himself to finding the kids in the hall a TV deal was that he brought the troupe to New York City. They would spend six months in what has been described as a comedy boot camp. Michaels felt that the group had conquered Toronto, but in terms of show business, Canada was the province's. If you wanted to know whether you had what it took to make it in comedy, you had to conquer New York audiences. Lauren Michaels had flown them down, put them up in apartments, given them an office in the Brill Building. They were to write during the day and perform at night. They were expected to generate the kind of buzz that they had had in Toronto after a year of performing to tiny crowds in the Rivoli, and they only had a fraction of the time in which to do it. On this morning, Dave and Kevin were having their breakfast at their local donut hole. It was their morning ritual before heading to their offices to write. Kevin was having his usual breakfast of a double chocolate dip donut and a large chocolate milk. Dave paused his coffee cup at his lips and stared at his friend over its brim. Something about this morning was different. What was once routine now graded Dave. How can he keep doing this to himself, Dave thought. Kevin had always been big, but he had somehow ballooned to 250 pounds since they first met. Maybe he was watching his morning ritual day after day, or the close quarters of living together, but Dave just couldn't take it anymore. He slammed his coffee cup on the table. You're killing yourself. You know that, right? Kevin stopped mid-chew. His eyes widened as he wondered, was this a bit? You eat like a fucking ten-year-old, and you're going to kill yourself. Just, just grow up, okay? It was a shock to Kevin's system. He was always the first to mention his weight, so he didn't have a pulse on what other people felt about it. And now here he was in front of a friend who was so concerned about him that he was yelling at him in a restaurant. Kevin put down his glass of chocolate milk. And from that day forward, he changed his relationship with food. He decided that he was going to drop an adjective from his identity as the funny fat guy.
February 2nd, 1988. The five members of the Kids in the Hall were squeezed into a New York radio studio while doing some press as part of their comedy boot camp. In the corner of the room sat journalist David Handelman. For the previous few days, Handelman had followed the kids on their New York adventure. He was writing a profile in the troupe for Rolling Stone magazine. He crisscrossed the city as they performed sets at Caroline's Comedy Club and the West Bank Cafe. He had sat witness to the chilly reception the troupe initially received in these clubs. Handelman had seen when the troupe was nearly booed off the stage when performing Bryant's Bombshell. It seemed a late 80s New York audience couldn't find the humor in sprinkling confetti from a bucket marked AIDS. It was the definition of too soon. It was in media res. In the studio, the troupe had just performed one of their sketches live on air for a New York audience, and the disc jockey opened the line for callers. Thank our callers once again. Uh, the disc jockey turned to the troop. Anybody? Rebuttals? Dave spoke up. I feel a real affinity with the Italian immigrants at the turn of the century. Maha. Well, why don't we go to a commercial break? It's just before Christmas, and all through the square are touches of sparkle and magic in the air. Santa's here, all cuddly and red, with visions of Christmas to fill little heads. Eight trees are decorated by children with care. One to be chosen is the Merry Best there. As once before, choose a senior who's dear to be this year's Merry Best Senior of the Year. Cherubs will get wrapped for just a small fee, so all your parcels are dressed for the tree. Tis a short time before Christmas, and all through the mall is the Merry Best Christmas for one and for all. Merry Christmas from Peterborough Square. Okay, Rudy, let it down. Hey, Rudolph, it's party time at the Colossus. I told you, Nikki. Shoppers Drug Mart had everything we needed. Candy, snacks, film, batteries, pop. More of everything we want in a drugstore. That Rudolph. <laughs> He's such a party animal. <laughs> <laughs> Come along for cartoon fun on the He-Man, She-Ra Christmas special tomorrow at 5 here on CHCH TV 11. Throughout their six months in New York, the kids in the hall performed a number of showcases for executives at HBO. Lauren Michaels was trying to secure a pilot commitment from the premium cable channel, but they could never convince the right number of execs at the same time, or perhaps they were never in front of the right person who could cut a check. They performed somewhere around seven showcases before HBO committed to give them $400,000 to shoot a pilot. Unfortunately, by that time, most of the money was eaten up by Broadway Video's development costs. Their comedy boot camp wasn't free. The costs associated with six months of living in New York City had to come from somewhere. At one point, it looked as though they would only have budget enough to shoot a one-hour pilot live from the stage at Caroline's. But help would soon come from an unlikely place. Ivan Fekin, the former VP of Creative Affairs at NBC, the very guy who scouted the kids in the hall for Saturday Night Live, was now the head of programming at CBC. Fekin, who had gone from a scout to a fan to a friend of the kids, was interested in doing a show with them. A deal was eventually struck between Lorne Michaels and the CBC. For the Canadian broadcast rights, the CBC would put up the below-the-line costs of making the show. They would provide production facilities and a crew in Toronto. 
With HBO and CBC on board to co-produce, the kids got on a plane back to Toronto and began putting together their pilot. Toronto, 1988. By the time they got their pilot deal, the kids in the hall had a catalogue of some 140 sketches. They had no shortage of material. Not all of it was suitable for television. In fact, Dave Thomas had once warned them that sketches that worked on stage at Second City never worked on SCTV. But they had a number of arrows in their quiver. The show was to be a mix of film pieces and sketches performed before a live studio audience. Lord Michaels had instituted the SNL model for performance night. They would do a film dress rehearsal followed by a live-to-tape show. Each would be in front of a different studio audience. The pilot was to be a mixture of stage work, like Guys on a Break, Brian's Bombshell, and Naked for Jesus, and sketches that could only be presented on TV, like a trio of head crusher sketches. I'm cutting your head! I'm cutting your head! But when it was time to tape the first performance, the troupe just didn't deliver. They were off their timing, asleep at the wheel and they ate shit in front of a live audience at CBC's Mutual Street studio. After the taping, the kids regrouped in their dressing room. There was a palpable feeling of tension in the air. They knew they had fucked up. Lord Michaels walked through the door. He put his hands in his pockets and stared at his shoes. He couldn't look at any of them. He was embarrassed by the last performance. So he stared at his shoes. Then he spoke. I'm only as effective as I can be with talent that's decided they want to turn pro. You guys either want to be in the big leagues, or you want to do something smaller. Smaller's okay, but you don't need me for smaller. Scott and Kevin locked eyes across the dressing room. They had made Dad mad. You're shooting a special for HBO out there. A special that would be on every television across Canada, for that matter. And you're sleepwalking through it. I can guarantee you, if the next taping is like what you just did out there, you're not getting a series. I suggest you take the next 15 minutes and discuss what you want to do. And with that, Michaels left the room, taking all the air with him. The five kids just sat there in a stupor for a moment. In the past, under normal circumstances, when an authority figure bawled them out, they would just band together for a collective cry of, what the fuck does he know? But this was Lauren Michaels. He wasn't some club owner or a TV exec. He was a kingmaker, and even in 1988, he was on his way to becoming an institution. In a group of guys with daddy issues, nothing felt worse. They sat together for what felt like an eternity in uncomfortable silence. And then, Bruce threw a chair against the wall. Mark kicked it with his foot, then threw the glass he had in his hand onto the ground. Within seconds, all five members of the troop willfully tore apart the dressing room. They cleared off every surface, chucked furniture, broke glass and mirrors. Ten minutes straight, they wreaked havoc. And when the dust cleared, they just stood around panting, sweating. Scott wiped his brow with his t-shirt then jumped down from the table he'd been standing on. Without a word to one another, they exited the room in a single file, careful to avoid the broken furniture and smashed glass. They had a pilot to shoot.
Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is written and produced by me, Ryan Barnett, and presented by Knockabout Media. It's co-produced with Sonia Jamidi, with additional voices provided by Matt Barnett and Sonia Jamidi. This was episode three, Is America Ready for the Kids in the Hall? In two weeks, I'll be back with episode four of our five-part series. If you like us, follow us, rate us, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And we're available just about everywhere else. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Knockabout Media. In researching this show, I relied heavily on This Book is About the Kids in the Hall by John Semley and One Dumb Guy by Paul Myers, as well as print and online interviews and DVD special features. Special archival audio comes courtesy of Retro Ontario. You can follow me on Instagram at It's Ryan Barnett. Go there and you can follow the progress on my new graphic novel on the life and work of Buster Keaton. Thank you for listening, and until next time. Oh yeah, the government wanted me to tell you that in the sewer there's this animal that's killing everything and nothing can stop it, and the only thing that can even slow it down is really expensive perfume. Knock about the media original.